Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can check me out on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Today is another X-Men X Wednesday, and as such, we're going to be taking a look at a double dose of Jerry Dugan's work on the X-Men titles, followed by a title that's near and dear to this team's heart, Marvel Voices Heritage. Now, Marvel Voices Heritage might not be an X-Men title strictly by name or office, but it has so many ties to the X-Men both directly and sort of conceptually that anybody who might have passed on it the first time around, hopefully after you listen to our coverage, go and pick up that incredible title. But kicking things off, first things first, we're going to be taking a look at X-Men number six, which features the introduction of Captain Krakoa. Now this character certainly raised a lot of discussion in fandom. There was some amount of who is it under them. Definitely raised a really interesting point about the sense of nationalism as it relates to Krakoa, as well as the X-Men's bigger place in the Marvel Universe. Now, that's something we've talked about a lot on this show, that the X-Men, as an idea, have expanded further into the Marvel Universe than they have in quite some time. And as such, we are going to be including Devil's Reign coverage. Devil's Reign is the current crossover spinning out of the pages of Chip Zdarsky's incredible Daredevil series. Now, Devil's Reign X-Men is going to be a tie-in miniseries by Jerry Dugan and Phil Noto. And it's likely to continue a lot of the threads that have been running around in X-Men. X-Men with Ben Urich, who is pretty classically a Daredevil character, as well as a number of the things going on over in Marauders with Emma Frost and her connections to Wilson Fisk. So with the X-Men poised to take a bigger stage in the picture of the Marvel Universe, this issue definitely was one that we could not wait to discuss. And ultimately, we had a lot of fun talking about where this title has been and where it's going, especially in the face of the inevitable reset that Destiny of X is bringing about. And we hope you guys enjoy. And if you guys like what you hear, don't forget, you might even like what you see. So don't forget to give us a subscribe over on Twitter and YouTube at X is for podcast. Hello, and welcome back to X is for podcast. It's me, your host, Steve. You can find me on Twitter at howdy Duda. That's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. And I'm joined today by some uh, compatriots to talk about X-Men. We have... Juancho here, and it's so good to be back. And you can find me on Twitter at Lost in Krikoa. We also have... And I'm, I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. I'm Mr. Toybox, Arturo. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Mr. Toybox. And I'm Nico, and you guys can find me being really confused how I've always wanted, like, an X-Men Captain America. I got it, and this is not... That the flowers on the side of the... Fan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action, <laughs> N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. <laughs> Yes, and yes, we're all pretty resigned, uh, but we are here to talk today about whatever happened to Captain Krakoa, X-Men number six. On our writing chores, we have, of course, Jerry Duggan. Art, we have the return of Pepe Larraz. And on colors, we have Marte Gracia, my favorite. And on letters, we have Clayton Cowles. All right, anyway, 
so we're here today <laughs> what happened to Captain Krakoa, and we actually don't know. We don't find out in this issue at all. How do, how do you all feel about the introduction of this brand spanking new superhero who we've I, I famously cosplay alternate versions of Captain America. It's what I do, and I cosplay X-Men. That's another thing I do. This does feel sort of like a cosplay. It feels very... Um, so in the 90s, anybody here who's read some old 90s back issues, there was this Combos Man advertisement for the snack <laughs> combos. Oh, I remember. It was a bunch of different heroes, like, segmented and stacked together oh. totem style. And that's that's sort of what this felt like. I'm thrilled that Ben Urich finally has something to do with the X-Men. I wish it wasn't this. I'm not a fan of the nationalism creeping into Krakoa uh, in general. I never enjoyed things like having a flag for a nation or having some like superhero protector who is tied directly to like the state of the nation. I think that's lame, and I think the X-Men are beyond that. Uh, beyond all of that being that this this Captain Krakoa like is has fake powers in the way that like I don't know the Slingers from old Spider-Man had fake powers, you know? Or like the Skrulls who impersonated... Okay, you just made a before. Slingers reference? You're my favorite. Wancho, how, how are you feeling about the uh, our newest Krakoan superhero? I think the biggest problem is that it's being played seriously. I think it would be really funny if it was like for laughs, but we're supposed to take it very seriously and I don't just don't buy it. Yeah, I kind I of agree with you that them. it's... Uh, I'm not the biggest fan of flag-bearing superheroes. Never have been. Especially because, mm -hmm. you know, the biggest one is Captain America, and I'm not American. So, yeah. <laughs> or Captain Britain. But, yeah, I just didn't really vibe with it. And I thought it, the review was completely obvious, so it ruined any mystery. So, yeah, I'm not a big fan of, of the idea of, of Captain Krakoa. Yeah, you bring up the obviousness, and, like, I mean, I, I feel like we pretty much all picked up on it before this issue came out, but, like, on that second or third page... There's an image of Captain Krakoa looking up, and it's like one of the most classic poses you've ever seen the, the superhero that he actually is in. Like it is, it could not be more of a giveaway if you've ever read an X Men comic starring this particular superhero, especially given the visor. Uh, TK, do you want to reveal <laughs> to us who we're talking about and uh, tell us your thoughts about him? We are talking about our old friend Scott Slim Summers. That is who Captain Krakoa actually is. And one thing I want to say is I agree with everything everybody has said. And on top of that, it's very clear that these things that we have a problem with are for the writer, a feature and not a bug. You know, the fact that it is cosplay, the fact that it is nationalist. I, I see the point there being like, I mean, we get almost immediately after the reveal, the fact that Scott doesn't want it. He is being pushed to do it by the council. They are trying to create a Krakoan symbol. So while it's obvious that it, Duggan wasn't like, oh, I want to do something cool and then screwed up what he was planning. It, I mean, it is that it's he, I, this is not how I would have gone about it. I don't want Captain Krakoa to be a cosplay and for it to look like that. And I don't want to start wading into nationalism for Krakoa. But what we have started to see at the end of Inferno in this next period that we're going into are all of the problems. And while I think that's great from a conflict and storytelling perspective, because of my just abundance of love for this era, I always need to see that balanced out with what's great about Krakoa and what's great about what's going on right now and in the dead of winter here in the heart of this new age we have fallen into a bit of a bad news slump and this did not help 
I completely agree. I, I think you're spot on correct that Jerry Duggan knows that Captain Krakoa is a bad idea. Cyclops knows that Captain Kakoa is a bad idea. I mean, forcing him to use mutant powers that are not his, that are fake, pretending to be dead. It's its just, it's a recipe for absolute disaster. It, it reads like a Spider-Man comic. And in fact, we do get a little bit appearance from Spider-Man here. And I want to say like, between Pepe and Marte, like this is such a good looking Spider-Man. I kind of want them on a Spider-Man. I kind of want them to write every comic, but I do really appreciate this, this opening page where uh, Scott is doing a bunch of heroic things. They're all things Scott would normally do, but they just, they look really good. They're rendered incredibly. The art is unbelievable and they're just like x-men things like putting the star on top of a christmas tree saving a cat things the x-men do (laughs) yeah and i i really love what everybody's saying and i love especially what you're saying just now steve because he is doing x-men things i think what kills me is that it's disingenuous like you could make captain krakoa and it could be fun you know one of the best things about one of the best things about wolverine is patch It's just so stupid, it has to work. And this could have been, you know, Captain Patchkoa, and it could have been so cute. And it's just... Especially because we've seen in this book other examples of the X-Men in New York doing like nice community-based non-cynical stuff. And, you know, there there was opportunity to write this in a different way. And yeah, to bring some camp to it, to bring some silliness to it. The fact that immediately after this, we go right into this grave conversation with the, the council, just the fact that Scott absolutely doesn't want it. And then just a really unfortunate reveal that this is all because of an event we did not see all because scott died at some point very publicly and losing that backstory is another big gap in this that makes it really difficult to connect with it i think that event is what we're going to see on the next issue so we're gonna have to i'd spent a while thinking that it was the death he had in uh avengers uh, x-men versus inhumans so I kept thinking it was like the death from a couple of years ago that nobody wanted. So I was just so confused. This is ultimately the central problem with the whole conceit of Jerry Duggan's run so far on X-Men, which is that that Ben Urich would be at all shocked by a superhero coming back from the dead. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't oh make... Oh my god. Oh my god, right? It is so completely wild. Like, as you pointed out, Cyclops has died publicly several times before and several times that people have not known about. But, like, mutants die all the time and come back. Spider-Man has died and come back. I mean, like, Ben Yurick has been there through all of this, through thick and thin. Uh, he, he deduced Daredevil's secret identity once, and it's just, I don't know. In a way, I mean, even other characters acknowledge that X-Men are completely like, that is pointless to them, yeah. even before Krakoa. So, like, it makes no sense. I mean, the only thing that sort of justifies this is that Orcus has, like, a ton of mutant corpses for some reason, and mutants don't even give a shit. But, yeah, they're asking us to believe that, like, New York or, like, the whole MCU, comics-wise, they've seen all the heroes and all the Wittgenstein come back billions of times. So what's another one? Yes. So yeah, it doesn't make that much sense. And I think there's a bit of a problem with the pacing in this issue with the fact that there's two stories that are completely disjointed. I mean, one's Captain Krakoa and the other is everything with uh, Phelan. And like those stories don't mesh, I think, so far. Yeah, they're an A and, and a B plot that have no, no weaving between them. Now we're reaching the B plot, which as which might actually be the A plot. I don't know. They're not, they're not connected and they take strange amounts of time between the two. But we open on um, Sunfire spending some time on Araco and the arrival of Phelan to the to the moon of Phobos. Before we get into the whole story of what's going on with Phelan, I just want to point out like the colors on this page are just 
phenomenal. Like the, the page where Sunspot's enjoying like an Iraqi sunset and looking out at the missiles as they come streaking in is just so gorgeous. And the way that he lifts off with his fire plume, it get, I, I like can imagine the entire, the entire burn up and the entire movement of his body as he lifts. It is a static image, but it has so much dynamism. To me, one of the other really gorgeous moments is on page 11. Sunspot meets Phalong and says, you're landing here. And just the juxtaposition of his orange with the green in Phalong's helmet. It's just, I mean, it's just these two, like the, the color is so good in the way these two contrast each other. It like the, the battle has already begun and nobody's fighting. That page has my biggest problem with the entire issue. And I think you know what, what I'm referring to. And it's just a, a panel where they refer to each other as just their nationalities. Yes. It just doesn't work. Yeah, absolutely. It's, no, and it's what, what TK said that it's this is just part of Jerry's writing. Like, it's what we expect from him now. Yeah, he thought that was poetic. Our grandfathers might have faced each other in battle, you know, like... You know, there was only ever one war between Sure, okay. (laughs) Right, exactly. Like, while technically that may be true, and while I know you think that that writing sounds like it's saying something profound, even if evil, we've just moved into a point where stuff like that can get left out. Going back to, like, nationalistic themes and stuff, that's part and parcel of Sunfire, right? Like, that's, like, his Japanese identity and like that that's just been something that's been part of him forever I mean I agree that is it was ham-handed and clumsy and not necessary you know uh it 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 took me out of the story you know when it would have it I was like oh yep I'm gonna hear about that while I don't disagree with that general idea and characterization of Sunfire part of the Krakoan era and and for Sunfire in particular in these last few issues of X-Men has been moving beyond that a little bit because we were getting one note with Sunfire and it yeah. was well two notes japanese and oppositional and it was like sorry we can't give you a lot more than that and you know just i always think back to that panel where gene hooks her arm in his and takes him back to the picnic and it's just like we're seeing sunfire be part of the family now well and you know i think in a lot of ways it's kind of like a magical venn diagram intersection of everyone is right because one of the things that is just sort of who dugan is is dugan worships that era of 70s comics that is very, ah, yes, and my people are of this place, and your people of that place, and normally we shall fight. And, like, you know, he's of that very specific mindset. And then, kind of conversely, in universe, because Sunfire has been treated with such a one note mindset, if this character has done his proper homework on the people he's going to face, and let's assume he has because he's already turned himself into, you know, a nuclear reactor. He's going to be like, ah, yes, this is the man who speaks frequently of the fact that he is Japanese. Hello. And, you know, so it's sort of both in-universe makes sense and as a reflection of the eras that it is a result of in-universe and Dugan's respect for those writers. Yeah, it's sort of a multifaceted problem that's going to take people fixing it in-universe and then people referencing that to kind of move it forward. Sunfire has had a lot of character development recently. Sunfire has identified himself with mutanity, mutant dumb, so much more than he has in the past and moved past the idea that Japan is all he is. But he is the one who here says, like, mutant dumb is not at war with humanity. That's how he sees the stakes. Whereas Phalong 
this is what doesn't jive with me is that Fei Long is the one who points out that he's Japanese and he's Chinese and that they're on a bigger stage than ever before. And Fei Long's whole thing is about like humanity taking back from mutants. It seems weird that they're playing on this this different level. I do get where Dugan is coming from with this. I think it's kind of strange, but it is nice that at least it's not Sunfire regressing to a level of simple nationality. Fei Long kind of stole this issue. An interesting and captivating antagonist. I am into it because it's 2020, you know, 2022. And I don't think you could find a, a more believable villain than a billionaire entrepreneur hellbent on space travel, right? Yes. Like, you know, like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos have entered the chat. Like, it's like, I, you know what? I bet Fei Long has the sickest collection of NFTs. Like, you just... <laughs> You know what I mean? Like and he's like all inside him. He sums up this grotesque capitalist, you know, kind of he like buys his own bullshit. I'm 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 very interested in him as as a as an antagonist. And I like that he's you know, a part of the the Orcus ecosystem. Well, I agree with all that, and I'm really interested to see where he goes. I already have this checklist in my head of what I'm going to need to see to buy this and be into it, because my first thought is like, okay, they he killed one of the Iraqi. Now the other, like the entire other planet could just go over to Phobos and wreck him and everything he's ever done. These are warlike, powerful people, and he is on their turf. So for me to believe that they don't go up there immediately and just completely destroy him, I'm going to need a lot for that. And my problem is I, I'm worried that that's not what I'm going to get. TK, I completely agree with you. And when I was reading this issue, first I had two problems with, three problems actually, with uh, Phelan capturing or claiming Phobos for humans. One, it should be a place of worship for mutants after Nightcrawler in Way of X. Yes. Or not like worship, but like Reverence. some sort of sanctity or something which doesn't make sense too it's Araco. why the hell are they not you know already on it or fighting for it it's sh they should already be prominent there you know it's like a few thousand hundred thousand miles or million miles i don't know from their home why are they not on it or a sword you know sword station or the peak station i don't remember which one and my third problem is that this sort of makes planet size uh a bit less powerful if the humans can also do it like like that you know yeah yeah thousand percent it's it's the problem of constantly dwarfing your previous action it's every time you make the annihilation wave the second issue of your book now <laughs> the stakes get real high in a matter of three panels a dyson sphere they by using that term they made him like a science super god for me like and he's yeah. it, it, it's just a concern that that is like a an echelon to place him at i feel like it's hard to take Phelong seriously here because he's the only person with superpowers on that moon like yes his dragon fire is very impressive but he cannot stand against the entire planet of the Iraqi. This seems like an absolutely like mad narcissistic move for him. But I I'm more frustrated with the positioning of Krakoans as like sheriff caretakers of the Iraqi. I this is a thread in D Duggan's work so far that has really been kind of annoying to me. Uh, it showed up first in Cable when uh, Cyclops and mm -hmm. Cable have to like arrest and hand over Iraqi to human governments. Are you fucking kidding me? Like, are you fucking kidding me? That's so ridiculous. But Captain Krakoa being a cop. Captain Krakoa is one aspect of this, of this appeasement, but like Sunfire also here has to be like the respectable mutant to humans and like be polite in order to save his life. 
I, I get the angle here, but it just feels like Jerry Duggan is just pushing back against the whole idea of what House and Powers of X stood for, which is humans not having to do this kind of bullshit anymore. Like they're literally on another planet here trying to make sure that the, the dangerous, hostile mutants from Arako, who are very much coded often as people of color when it comes to mutants, are here now having to be like represented by these nice, polite mutants from Krakoa who are much more human-like and have to do this appeasing job. But... And I think like the holistic thing that you're saying is like it's like an altogether view. Uh, I think that is maybe where Dugan's X Men is such a hard departure from Hickman's X Men. I've said this a thousand times, but this is the sixth issue of Dugan's X Men that feels like seventy percent of his job is to convince us it's okay that he's not Hickman. And that's not fair to any creator. Dugan shouldn't have to justify why he's not Hickman. And I'm not saying that he's being pushed to a place that isn't normally within his wheelhouse. But it does feel like every issue, with the exception of perhaps the Nightmare Halloween, kind of felt like maybe it should have been a little bit more Death of Doctor Strange one-shot kind of tie-in. With the exception of that issue, X-Men as a series has felt very much like Dugan is at kind of like fandom's blade where he's being pushed to do these big over the top things every issue. And I'm not having like suspension of disbelief problems because look at how much stuff we got in like, you know, you know, the 10 lives of Moira, we immediately accepted that much new, but it feels like because there's this burden of Dugan to prove his value as a creator, it seems a little bit for me, like he's trying to make every moment and every event so big that it's harder to take them all seriously together. And it's some of where the disjointment is coming from. It is for me that he pushes against the very premise that the Krakoan era has been founded on, if that makes sense. It's, it's almost going back to where it was in the first place. Yeah. But it's pretending that it grew out of Hox Pox. Yeah, essentially the treehouse is just a rebranded mansion, you know, and that's my main problem with it because I thought we had moved past that in the past two, three years or almost. And X-Men has always been, I mean, six issues, not that long, but it's always felt like, oh, you don't like Krakoa. So we have this other team with other cool people on it. Uh, we don't care about Krakoa, you know. I think this would be a really great X-Men run standing on its own. There's something about it that does feel kind of like just good PR, you know, like let's let's get a, a heroic team and put them in a highly dense populated area. Let's put them in the middle of Central Park and, you know, make a tourist attraction out of it. I think there's something to be said for having a foothold in New York. And, and you know, there's Avengers Tower, there's the Baxter Building, and there's a Treehouse. Like, I think that's... That's right. And that, that kind of nails it, is that it is a status quo X-Men. I think it's in part for me that they're just doing a big thing, and I just don't think they're doing it boldly. I don't think they're doing a big thing badly, but I don't think they're doing the big thing boldly. And in a world where the stakes have been raised on boldness, on bravery, on advancement of storytelling, and on cleverness of idea... It feels in some ways like this is, even down to using Ben Urich, kind of an outing, a superhero story. Not like in a gay way. I don't mean that incendiary. I mean it like down to using Ben Urich. It's sort of the Daredevil's identity thing again. Not that that's a bad thing as a big Daredevil guy. It just does feel like an era marked by bravery. The flagship title is going to play it safe a yeah. little bit more often. Down to the OP Spaceman. Like, that is my one thing. Uh, he, he's way too powerful. Fei Long is just, like, way too powerful. 
which I love and hate. It always gives me pause. You know, that's like, that's the markings of a sinister, of an apocalypse. And when you can make one of them stick, it's epic. So I am interested to see how they're going to defeat him. Somebody said uh, that, you know, that's not the same thing as taking on an entire Arakal horde, but, you know, the idea of taking on one-on-one, sure. I kind of wonder. He probably has plans for that. I don't think he pulled out his biggest gun yet, so I am very curious to see how powerful Dugan will push him and how it will be believably bought back, because that's going to be the art of it. The thing is, it started unbelievably. Like, I don't buy it that this guy in like three months built an entire Dyson Sphere and all that, and the mutants did absolutely nothing about it. I just don't buy it. And that's my main issue with this run. And I think the idea of boldness is absolutely correct. You know, this this issue especially points to a lot of insidiousness. The insidiousness of the plan for C- Captain Krakoa, the fact that it is a backroom quiet council move, does not speak to the boldness and bravery of how mutant superheroes have been acting in the greater world um, throughout the Krakoan era. There's other books where we see insidiousness, you know, the Hellfire Training Club, the Marauders. There's a lot of back backdoor dealings, but there's also an acknowledgement of that thing that the mutants have to do, which is be bold in the public eye. And we're, my two problems that I'm seeing with it are one, that this is insidious on the part of like, like the planners, the council and all that Two, we know from other books and from knowing other characters that there are some amazing people who can handle PR on Krakoa. And those are people we, if this is going to be insidious, we could make it boldly insidious by being like, we got, we pulled some of the characters from X Corp into this meeting to talk about how to make this look good. Hell, bring Kyle into it. Uh, yes. North Star's husband. He's, yes. he's PR background. Come on. Yep. Yeah, and I, I love immediately that we're like, oh, look, a human as that bridge point. The X-Men have such a deep bench that having to create Captain Krakoa... Guy, I, I, I have several custom Captain America cosplays, and I'm like, Captain Krakoa, huh? Where's Jumbo Carnation? Let's see some looks. Like, there are people that, that do this. The idea that it's one meeting with the same Quiet Council that we get to see in other stuff, doing other stuff. I love them, but... They this is this was not for them. But speaking of risks narratively, we did in the timeless room just talk about Kang's future vision or maybe present vision of a, the moon being cracked in half, and we talked about how at first we thought maybe it was going to be Cyclops's home, although he lives in a treehouse as well. Um, but we think actually it might be Phobos's moon. You know, maybe this is the Iraqi um, people fighting fighting back against the death of one of their own by just destroying Phobos. They weren't using it anyway. There's no reason why they wouldn't just blow it the fuck up. Uh, which is part of what makes me think Phalong is is not so believable because the Erechii could just blow up the moon and this man can take out one guy at a time with impressive dragon fire but like they have Iska the unbeaten I I just don't see it for him yeah well until you said it that way because now all of a sudden I'm like I see the Iraqi just being like and now we destroy the moon yeah why and everybody's like wait what and they weren't even on it yeah they're just like let's just destroy it it's going to be a, a glorious victory and he will die on his precious moon uh, and you know everyone is going to be like did you guys really just destroy that and they're going to be like what use did we have for that moon it was a glorious victory uh, he's just not prepared for the nutsness of the Iraqi 
No, I th- see. I think that window closed the minute that that he really set up camp. Like he needed to be wiped out upon arrival. But as soon as he sent out that press release, now it's a whole thing about optics. Now, yeah, mutants can say, "Oh, you know, they were they posed a clear and present threat, and we were defending ourselves or whatever." But it's going to look like mutanity took a you know a swing on on humankind on, on humanity's innovation, right? Like, yeah. and then space exploration so i think that ship has sailed i think like that and we're now with a a nice messy problem here where you've got you know the wolves at the door it's only a problem for Krakoa, though, because Zareko doesn't care about any of that. They don't give a shit what the humans think, rightfully, in my opinion. This is part of what I'm talking about, is that Jerry Duggan keeps maneuvering Krakoa further into this, like, appeasing humanity still is necessary deal, when I had hoped that we were past that as a line, and the line, the rest of the line appears to be past that, but obviously, like, I'm, I'm being a little harsh on the narrative. He does a pretty good job, although, like, sometimes there's weird stuff, like Sync being in the credits page on this, and then only appearing to say hello to Cyclops. That feels like... There's a whole thing got cut out of here. Honestly, this X-Men run is always going to be very valuable to me because of Loraz and Marte Gracia's art. Like, it's just, we end this in that subway and like, this is like some of the best art in the issue. I mean, there's a lot of really great art in this issue, but I felt like this could be like, Loraz, Gracia, take on Daredevil. Just go ahead. Because <laughs> this looks good. This, the brooding. Yep, it's gorgeous. You know what I mean? That yeah, that final extremely detailed page of Scott just sitting there with his head in his hands in the subway tunnel. And that's such a specific scene of like New York subways. There's, I think that's on 14th, like the Union Square station where it has that, this huge curve to the right. Like he captured that in such a cool way. Yeah, the, the opening panel to this and the closing panel of this issue knocked my socks off. And I just want to point out one more time that while it was renamed from Devil's Reign Marauders, Devil's Reign X-Men by Jerry Dugan and Phil Noto is going to be running from January 19th to March 23rd. So we are currently in a position where the Marvel Universe is trying to do things like strangely combine Daredevil and the X-Men both through Marauders by Dugan. Yurik showing up in the pages of X-Men by Dugan, and now through a Devil's Reign, which is Daredevil's crossover, crossover by Dugan. (laughs) So it does really feel like there is a certain noir draw that, you know, he's trying to bring in. Yeah. One last thing I'd like to point out before we before we necessarily close out is uh, Karen Charm pointed this out to me, but they should retire this Murd Bullock joke. They spell his name wrong on this page. I, it doesn't work. It's not good. Please, do, please stop bringing it up. It was really funny the first time. It's literally spelled wrong. It was. <laughs> I, yeah. I don't know why that bothers me so much. Yeah. It's just Dugan being off the wall in a Deadpool way. And this just doesn't feel like a Deadpool book. I just I feel like if you took this book, all six issues, and recut it very slightly, I'd like it a lot more. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair to say. I mean, the the art is incredible. It's a good X Men run for any other time. It's just for me, it is just that is feels so divorced from the central thematic drive of the Krakoan era in every other book. Not just Hickman's X Men, but like New Mutants and X Factor and these things that want to explore what what this new world means. This book does not really want to explore what this new world means very much. I'm kind of excited to see the Ben Uric thing kind of wrap up and what goes next. Feilong was the coolest thing about what's happening here. I am. I'm happy to see a new formidable antagonist on the board and i would like to see him stick around but i don't know uh, the thing with dugan is he starts off really strong and we saw this in marauders and and marauders kind of started losing its way and this x-men run started off with a very clear purpose i think i'd like to see him 
stick to that, but also evolve it and and kind of surprise us? I, I would hope that my biggest criticism of this run doesn't end up just being that it's too much like the X-Men before Krakoa. That's provided that it hits 11. I really have some everything is going to relaunch for this new era destinies of x thing i'm like this book the last thing it needs is to have been a footnote you know what i mean like if this numbering keeps going or it gets folded into a legacy number this run has the markings of kind of rising up out of them and kind of pulling itself together because if you think back on kieran gillen when he started under matt fraction it wasn't perfect right away either, right? He took a little time to really get his voice in place and hit his stride. And I think Dugan could do the same, but not if this reboots with a new number one. It's going to feel like regression. So I think I really need them to keep the numbering going in a way that doesn't normally matter to me. Yeah, I need them to keep their eyes. I think you're right about that. I think I would love to see a consistent art team for a while, for sure. And I would love if it was Laraz. <laughs> If this book is able to progress for a while, we might need to shake up the roster a little bit and put especially Scott and Jean uh, elsewhere and give Sink and Laura and Lorna the spotlight they really deserve, have earned, and is proving to be the most compelling part about the book. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, I I would love to see this. You know, like how sometimes a book gets too caught up in other crossovers and other shenanigans? Like, I wouldn't mind this team being the team that's, you know, teaming up with the Fantastic Four or doing, uh, you know, side quest with the Avengers or whatever. Like they can kind of be that outward facing kind of PR team. That the event they, team. Yeah, there could be some, you know, there's some play there, um, which still feels X-Men, but it's not, it doesn't muddy the water of Krakoa. That's interesting to me. If, if this book was like Sword has been, where it just ties into every major Marvel event, uh, I think that it could be a very interesting title. Which is weird to say. I don't don't think I would normally say that about an X-Men run, but I feel like that's that would be a good use of this team. Hey everybody, Nico here again. Now, this next coverage is of Jerry Dugan's final issue of Marauders, and it's been such a wild ride. We began discussing Marauders way before this was even the format of the show, and it's been such a pleasure to watch this series unfold. Jerry Dugan went from that Deadpool guy who was bringing some crazy new ideas to the X-Men to a mainstay of the line, and it's so fascinating to see the way he alternates between modes as his X-Men and his Marauders really do feel like two different titles. So it's really exciting getting the opportunity to juxtapose these two bits of coverage back to back. Now, this is, of course, as we discuss in this coverage, not the final issue of Marauders itself, as Marauders is about to hand the reins over to Steve Orlando. And, you know, here we are a very queer kind of show, so we're very excited to hear that a number of these amazing queer characters are about to fall into the hands of a queer writer. And while we are very excited for where the series is going, we're still very grateful for where Jerry Dugan was able to take this series with a number of his brilliant artist collaborators like Matteo Loli and Phil Noto and it was even nice the way as Josh points out that a number of the threads that are addressed here are from Jerry's other earlier titles as well so we could not have been more excited to give Marauders by Dugan the send-off it deserved than this we hope you guys enjoy and 
Welcome back to X's for Podcast. Mi gente, I'm Arturo. And today we're going to be covering Marauders 27, the grand finale. And I'm joined by my friends TK. Hey, oops, sorry. <laughs> hey, I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. And I'm Steven. You can find me on Twitter at Steven of Wonder. That's Steven with a V. And I am also an admin for the House of North Star group on Facebook. I'm Josh Will. You can find me on Twitter at Asleep at the Wheel, W-E-I-L, and at asleepatthewheel.com. And from now until November 8th, 2022, as the progressive Democrat running for U.S. Senate in Florida, you can find me across social media at Wheel, the number four U.S. Senate, and at joshwheel.org. All right, so let's get into it. We're covering Marauders 27, the final chapter in Jerry Dugan's grand opus of the Marauders. Artists here were Matteo Loli and Phil Noto. Colorist, Phil Noto and Rain Barreto. Letterer, BC's Corey Pettit. Ahoy, mutants! We are setting sail for our last voyage with this with this particular crew. I'm saying finale, I'm saying the last chapter, but, you know, as, as we all know from the solicits, more Marauders are on the horizon, and... And this time, Steve Orlando will be at the helm. But for this grand conclusion here, we've been with this random collection of characters on the SS Marauder for about two years now, over two years. And it's been a hell of a trip. And this last issue felt like a lot of table setting, a lot of tying up a couple of loose ends, uh, maybe untying a few and leaving a couple of mysteries there in the water for, for the next creative team to pick up, which is, you know, that's always fun. I have been really critical of Dugan's The X-Men. There's a lot to love, but there are some things that I just really have not connected with. And whenever I read Marauders, I forget that it's him because Marauders resonates with me so much and has basically throughout the entire book. It This was to me exactly the right way to do a send-off. It is a clearly established end to the story that Dugan was telling, but leaves plenty of room for the story to continue as we know it's going to with Steve Orlando. You know, I've also really just loved the aesthetic of this book and of the characters. The cast in this issue was huge. We start off with Kate and Ford. We got Emma. We have Lourdes Chantel in the mix. Pyro and Bishop. Callisto. Christian Frost. Mask. Wilhelmina Kensington. I mean, it's like the the horrible, you know, Hellfire children over in Mad Rapport. Like, it, this was this was robust well i absolutely really loved this issue i think that this entire run has just been a total ode to emma frost and he's done her a great service and i will miss reading her in this book because it does not feel like she's going to continue in uh steve orlando's run i don't know i could be wrong about that josh what did you think of opening up with that old chestnut kate can't get through the gates a plot point that seemed so pivotal at the onset and then was kind of a workaround like okay we will we'll we'll teleport in other ways I, i really liked the way that it was handled because you know we got forge looking at it from a different angle not just in the way kate was seeing it but the way that we've always thought of it you know we've always um he used kate kind of as the reader protagonist there 
there giving us a suggestion of, you know, it's ironic because she can get through anything except these doors. And then him reminding us that the, the doors and the gates are really technology and that she disrupts technology, but this is technology disrupting her, you know, and it also acts as some bookends. That was our first big kind of mystery starting this off. And this is a really nice table setting issue that kind of bookended the series as a whole and acted as a nice epilogue to kind of a lot of the major action that we'd seen. And I love the way that they split with the artists because, you know, Duggan had been and I, I know there's been people have been unhappy with him on the internet, but people aren't happy about everything on the internet. You know, I'm on record on here as thinking that Duggan has done a phenomenal job, particularly on this Marauders book, but also going into the cable book that he had for 12 issues that he has been one of, I would say, one of the top non-female writers in comics to be able to have multiple female characters with unique voices and agency because that is just something that is is still unfortunately too rare in, in our big two books. And, uh, you know, we had long stretches of this title where we would complain that it felt like he forgot all about Bishop, Pyro, and Iceman. But the other end of that coin was that the issues were just entirely focused around characters like Kate and Emma and uh, Callisto and Storm. And, you know, it was just a, a full spread of, you know, female characters with their own voices and agency. Um, yeah, he's almost like Claremont uh, in that way. There's no mm -hmm. there's no mystery to who are his favorites. And yeah. and he writes and he does write. He writes one of the best Emmas, I think. But, period. but the distribution of the art in here was great, too, because, you know, Marauder had been more of an action-packed book and we got all of the great Taylor Lolly art for those scenes. And then particularly with some of the Emma and the Five and One, it was all Phil Noto, which with those close-ups that we got so much, those beautiful close-ups of them that we got uh, so much of in the Cable run that, you know, if you've been reading the entire Hickman era of X-Men, really kind of tied and brought back, even though that was from another series, you know, to what those characters have been going through, you know, in the Hox Pox to Inferno era. And I also like that this felt for the first time in a minute like a book that we were getting when we were supposed to get it <laughs> this felt like the epilogue to inferno whereas everything else we've been sitting there like is this supposed to be before this? Is this supposed to be after this? But, you know, the little things like the, you know, the soon to be renamed Moira McTaggart Hospital <laughs> helped us be real clear that, you know what, this is this is an epilogue to that. We are reading this after we read Inferno yeah. and we know this takes place after yeah. Inferno. It definitely did feel like an epilogue to Inferno. That was a really good point. Specifically, it's Emma post Inferno. Let's talk about some of the musical chairs. I, for one, am distraught at the concept of Emma not being called the White Queen. <laughs> Yeah. like that she can take on any number of other titles but like i just it doesn't sit well with me uh but i do think it's cool that it is the five and one who will be serving as the hellfire's white queen i think that's an interesting concept i would have been fine with them just being like the white rook or something else uh, but you know it is what it is i'm actually really glad you mentioned that because that's something that's going to be a lot for me to get uh used to as well since i i'm very obsessed with the idea of mutant names and uh the the idea that you know their old names calling them by that you know could be considered dead naming them and things like that uh because it's just such a, a queer way of looking at it and i have always considered the white queen to not just be her title but also her mutant name so this this feels like 
uncharted territory well, for me even though technically we did get her as the black king for a little and that's bit. what i was going to say i think creatives uh you know have previously done their best to kind of separate the white queen from emma frost whether it was bendis with the bachelor redesign emma in black which still to this day like in my mind whenever i see that costume i like put a white filter <laughs> over it just to like, <laughs> oh yeah and then her taking the title of the Black King and like, but once we established Krakoa and reestablished and reorganized the Hellfire Club as Hellfire Trading and she took her name rightfully back, like that felt so good because it was like, okay, we're not calling her the White Queen anymore because we can't break habits and because that used to be her name. So we still call her that. It was kind of like her reclaiming her own name and her own title and making it, redefining it as, as something, you know, legit rather than something evil and then part of you know the the evil hellfire club and her her checkered past so i'm wary she's not demoted from it she hasn't lost the title she's ascended to something higher right. like she is and this was part of our kind of deconstruction and look at inferno as a whole she has all of those men on the quiet council that she has to full-time keep in check now yes. because she she is the ruling member in a sense of the quiet council she has usurped charles and eric and kind of taken a step above them as part of everything that happened in Inferno, taking the power of their secrets from them, sharing it with everything else and putting herself in that dominant position to them. She's been doing a lot of things, which was, you know, kind of pointed out in this issue. And she needed to, she now has this new, more important role that is going to require all of her attention because she's got, you know, this council of, you know, she's got at least four or five guys on there. She knows she can never trust. I think Emma is one of those characters who you can approach it from a lot of different ways you know the idea of mutant names dead naming things like that everybody gets to have a different feeling and perspective about their name and emma is one of those characters who i could see saying you know i am emma frost i was born emma frost emma frost is perfection i don't need a different name at the same time i can also see her saying white queen is a title in hellfire structure and that's great and that goes to my girls I will always be the White Queen because to me, it has been more of a name than just that particular position. And you can just imagine a panel where she punches somebody in the face and says, you know, I'm always the White Queen. In a way, she's like ascended to like Queen Mum, like quite literally. Like, and I think that's pretty much how readers will take it. Like, we can call her whatever we want, but she will always be the White Queen. Yep, absolutely. What did you guys think of the Black King so willingly abdicating his throne for Lord Chantel, our new Black Queen? I think it goes along with what we saw with Emma as well. I think that, you know, with Emma in her new position, you know, we saw in Inferno, the one thing he can't stand is Emma above him. He wants to put all as more of his attention on the Quiet Council. Why? Because that's where Emma's putting more of her attention. And he still feels that he can manipulate and control the people from, you know, his his corner of Hellfire as well with Shinobi and Lourdes. He thinks that he has a thumb on them because he's an arrogant son of a bitch. So it made sense, you know, even though it, it caught Emma by surprise, but it was just kind of more of their chess match that we've seen throughout this entire thing of, of him seeing where she was going and making sure that he went there as well. Again, I'm like, I'm a sucker for, for a good motif, a good little theme. I, I've always just loved that about the whole concept of the Hellfire Club and the 
titles oh, yeah, and the same. seats and the court and like the court intrigue or whatever. I am all for Sebastian Shaw. It's a game within a game and he's fucking playing everybody and whatever. But like uh, just just like the OCD in me would have appreciated him taking the black rook position or whatever and being like, yes, I'll hail the queen. And, you know, I would have also been cool with him staying as king, you know, in servitude to the black queen. But whatever. It's cool. I'm happy to see more movement over there on that side of things. I could have done with a little dash of Harry Leland. I would love to see him actually getting a proper title on the Hellfire Court, but I know he's very busy serving as Krakoa's ambassador to the UN, so. I just want him, like, annoying the shit out of Shinobi and following him around, trying to get him to, like, play catch and do other, like, <laughs> stupid father-son things. That's how I imagine Harry Leland. Shaw's feelings about Lordis are the most complex thing for him right now in this sort of musical chairs because we know that he has a lot of regret. We also know that he is somebody who, if if he has an ambition, his feelings and his regret will not necessarily take precedence. Exactly. So we're in this really interesting position where he wants to make amends and he wants to be that person that, you know, maybe they reestablish their relationship. We don't know. But will he, when push comes to shove, will he accede to her, you know, her own ambitions? Or will there be a step too far where he says, no, you know what? I, I loved you. I wanted like to make amends with you, but I can't I can't give up my my plans and my power. You're giving him more credit than I would. I, I looked at it as just I read him as just being more manipulative in the sense that you know with the way that he wants her or, or desires Lourdes or his feelings about her that he won't say no to her he will say yes to anything she asks of him but he is going to still continue to do his thing as if he had said no like it doesn't matter what he says he gives her he's still going to be him mm -hmm. you know she can have the title and he's still going to try to run shit maybe some of that was the lessons that Emma and Kate have taught him along the way, but at the end of the day, he's always going to end up being Sebastian Shaw again. He's always going to be a horrible, frightening misogynist. I agree. I, I mean, I, you know, I live in hope that, that there might be a, a better Shaw in there. I, I always appreciate that. I love nothing more than a good, you know, villain rehabilitation story. So, you know, I'm for it. But I do appreciate that early on, Shaw betrayed them. Shaw, like, it, it, Shaw did them dirty. And, and not even for, like, a good reason. For, like, the most base of reasons. And we got a really interesting glimpse into his feelings about Krakoa at the end of this issue you know that he sees he sees Hellfire Trading Company he sees the Hellfire Club as being immortal and Krakoa as being fleeting like nation he was he says in uh, on one of the data pages you know like nations rise and fall corporations right. you know go on forever um so you know his view of whereas everyone else views hellfire as being like a subsidiary or subservient to Krakoa and the quiet council he views it the other way around as well yeah there is there's a part of sebastian shaw that is so uh, almost like the paragon of capitalism run amok that like you can't separate that out you know even if he is living on this mutant paradise and not you know looking to betray mutanity for for a quick buck uh he can't shake himself of just the way he's hardwired all that is to say i think he's still a very interesting character i'm so happy that he wasn't just thrown in a hole or or killed or left in the resurrection queues i'm really glad that emma and kate put him through what they put him through and that we have a i don't know maybe still manipulative still underhanded but certainly a more humbled shaw and i think a shaw 
Shaw with a, a broader perspective on this. So I agree. Shaw and his power set and his financial influence being such an asset for the X-Men. I would love to see that happen without ever worrying about him, you know, reverting back to his old spots. But it's it's really, it's in the hands of the next writer and how they uh, interpret what happens. I just know that he's always going to be the same old Sebastian Shaw to most people. So Yeah, yeah. yeah his, his coming around is not like Apocalypse or Exodus where, you know, their interest and everything they'd been striving for aligns with the rest of Mutantum now. Right. He's still an asshole. He's just their asshole. Yeah, you know who else I want more for? Callisto, the tip of the blade. We got a little a little gasp of Callisto saving the day for Wilhelmina Kensington. Ke- Wilhelmina Kensington, which was another story for better or worse. Perhaps a good perhaps <laughs> a good example of maybe a story that wasn't cherry. Well, my problem with the, the Wilhelmina story was that the character it best served wasn't Wilhelmina. That story best served the Cuckoos in terms of them kind of taking a step out from Emma and doing like no like where, you know, making their own decisions and um you know going beyond her and kind of impacting other mutants or or you know putting their i don't say their mark on things but you know having their own impact which is a shame because you know that story should have been more clearly hers like they i don't think that she had as much agency in that story as she should have And I think the fact is you could have gotten to the same point that we ended without trying to hit the story beats in between that, as Arturo said, weren't necessarily Dugans to tell in this in this case. Absolutely. And I think that 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 her story could have actually gone to more like tempo screen time. In my opinion, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> who was on the cover but then didn't appear in the book. Yeah, I mean, I that was like the biggest uh, tempo tease. Just like <laughs> I really enjoyed this issue a lot, and I mean, there was there was so much. We haven't even talked about the the great buddy drama comedy that is Pyro <laughs> and Bishop. Pyro and Bishop. But I look back, you know, just a few issues ago, and I and I find myself wondering why the fuck did we spend what was it two or three issues fucking around in space when like, like you could have been giving us more stories with Callisto, with Christian Frost, with like Pyro, Bishop, like the cast of characters. And instead we got what felt like a little bit of filler and a little bit of uh, mental spillover from I'm working on X-Men now and they're fucking with aliens in space. So the Marauders are going to dabble their toes in that water as well. There were too many threads and characters for him to be able to service all of them. So wait, so Christian and Bobby are a thing, but like how much of that have we gotten? Because it was definitely like hinted at or told like that they were going out or doing things once or twice but there just wasn't there weren't enough pages or panels for that to get service more like we all fell in love with pyro early on and there was not yeah like we just lost pyro for like a solid year there was there was not even like subtext it's not even like you saw them exchange a glance somewhere and like and like they're fucking off panel no you never saw them interact Iceman saying he was gonna go pick up christian or like we kept getting like one of like we would get a little scene with one of them and like it would get thrown in at the end um 
I mean, one thing that that we got in this is that Christian is going to go on a little vacation with Bobby and discover himself and come back with to Ibiza with, to Ibiza and come back with his mutant name. And yes. and I think a viable name for Christian Frost, and I say this with love, might be Flop because let's face it, <laughs> twenty seven issues. The guy, if he had one job, it was to figure out his mutant name, and he hasn't because that He's was like a plot point. I fluffer. He can just be like a hot twunk that hangs out in the boat and you know is like it's fine i don't i don't go right. i don't go to christian frost for like death it's all good you know i think right and and that's and that's absolutely fair and i think it's okay for that to have been his role in the book i i kind of really would like a lot of these storylines that we're talking about that we missed with him to go to a queer writer because I think that that's just the perspective that we really don't see on a lot of actual queer characters and especially in the X-Men where we have Iceman and Christian having a more queer version of a relationship because that's that's a lot more of what hookup culture is perceived as anyway Christian and maybe even Shinobi Shaw and I just I really want to see queer writers handle him and see what how he develops through that lens as opposed to another cishet white man oh my god christian shinobi and bobby like that that is that <laughs> messy I, love triangle oh my god not don't even give me a love triangle like they could be just kind of like polycule yeah like, yeah yeah but it's like but it's like <laughs> but it's like even less like shinobi shaw if there's one thing shinobi shaw loves it's like a sexy hot tub pool party like he threw those shinobi shaw is allergic to clothes yeah like, he loves that shit and like that's that's what i would love to see them like yeah. Gonna be uh, throwing like house parties and orgies and well, we are yeah. getting Steve Orlando, and so you know, whenever Steve Orlando comes onto a book, I my immediate expectation is that it better have as much hot gay sex as the Midnighter series did. So that's that's my baseline. I I, I expect <laughs> a bare minimum of that amount of hot gay sex in my comic. We know that we're sticking with Bishop and Kate, which is wonderful. We got that little that little that little panel of them back to back fighting. Like, no, nah, I'm good. Yeah, this is too much fucking fun. Like, love that for them. I love and also I love that idea that like they had that conversation yes. and they were like, No, we're we're gonna keep marauding. Like this doesn't stop. This project is not done. Yes, agreed. We're also gonna have the second most problematic of the Xavier twins. I think no, I think Cassandra Nova is the most problematic. Yeah, let's look at the new roster. So we're getting so we've got Cassandra Nova. We've got Tempo. You guys mentioned. We got Psylocke. Like a hero. Yep. A hero. Yep. Dokken. Somnus. Somnus. That's going to be exciting. We haven't seen Somnus in much of anything, right? Somnus came out in that uh, in the Pride issue, and I think that's it. No. Aurora. Kate will have Bishop. We'll have Shinobi and Lourdes around, I guess. There's still going to be a pretty big cast kind of in and out of this book. Yeah, I imagine the characters that we haven't seen announced on the actual Marauders roster. I mean, there are still there are so many secondary and tertiary characters in this book that have to come in and be like, this is your mission today. We have this thing. going. I mean, I imagine we'll see uh, Wilhelmina more like there's there. And that's one of the great things about Marauders is it pulls in characters and gives them a tie to an ongoing story. And when it works right, you're like, you know, I think Lord, this is a great example. When it, when it works, you get development for a character that might, it might be too tough to like frontline them in a main book, but they get to participate in the story to get some plot development, to be in, 
impact character for the overall progression of Krakoa. And it expands, you know, just beyond the team roster. So I love that about, you know, who's like no better example of that than mask. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Mask has been so great. A a minor bit character has had very little panel time, but wow. Like so much. Perfectly used though. Perfect doses. Yeah. You see him in the retirement center. Then you see him now, you know, doing good and, and working in a hospital and like using his power to, to help people. And it's shit like that, that I really enjoyed this ending for this book. This Marauders started off as my favorite title. A big part of that was probably Jerry's uh, ability to write a good Emma. And, and, you know, it may have floundered or meandered a bit along the way, but this, I felt like this was a really strong conclusion. My favorite thing about this at the start was that this was the drunk Kate book. Like it's been a while, so we might forget. Kate was drunk for three of the first four issues. That was amazing. Yeah. Kate breaking her nose was like, I laughed out loud. Like that was, that was great. Should we talk about uh, Kate for a minute, actually, when it comes to the ending of the book? Sure. Kate going to- Kate and Reed? Yeah. uh, Of all people, you know, he's not gonna, somebody who's not ever guilty of any fuckery at all, Reed Richards. With- what Kate is asking for and what she seems to want to give him in return seems ultimately terrifying to me after all of the uh, stuff that Chip Zdarsky, you know, wrote in, in that book, that mini series that ended up not mattering. See, now I love Reed Richards. So I was very fine with this because to me, I have much higher opinions of Reed Richards than I do of Charles Xavier. And I kind of wow. remember here, <laughs> oh. my first... My, my my first thought of, well, okay, so the Reed Richards parenting thing and the way it's been done with the anti, like, there's, okay, the, in the last few years, it has it has been problematic. I blame the writers um, because I've read hundreds and hundreds of issues of Reed Richards, and that's not how I have him in my brain. But I kind of, you know, the first thought of this was, oh, my God, like, she's going over Xavier's head. But then I have to, then I kind of stopped and remembered, like, no, 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 no. She is a quiet council member she is a peer and equal of charles xavier at this point like charles xavier went off on his own bullshit making unilateral decisions on things after everything that happened between the fantastic four and krakoa the quiet council it does feel a little bit like she's going behind their back i mean for all we know she did discuss it with them and they they do know what's happening but at the same time like it doesn't worry her that he desperately wants to know to know what that inform like what that that is very much of character. Reed would have to know that. Reed would go fucking nuts. No, no, no. Reed will undo the universe. Reed will like will will rip a hole through which he's done. Fabric, <laughs> like, yeah. Take out various timelines to find out that information, which is fucked up. Which is you know, it like is. Reed might have like the best of intentions, not an evil bone in his gross elastic body, uh, but he's definitely much like Beast, the kind of person who will do very morally question and fucked up things it just in the name of science and the pursuit of knowledge and you know whatever right. and and just to be clear i am actually a fantastic four fan like i genuinely love them so i'm not trying to like shit all over reed richards i actually genuinely like mr fantastic i just i do think that it's fair to say that there are problematic things about him which and, and, and this is one of and them. that's you know what and like that those are good stories like i i 
I appreciate that Jerry, like, on his way out, went and, like, tapped the, you know, because the X-Men Fantastic Four mini was, it, it, it was a mixed, re- you know, reception. Like, some people liked it. Some people absolutely hated it. I mean, like, X- I loved it, to I, be honest. I thought it was great. I thought it was fun. I I hated Franklin later than being retconned into not being a mutant. Oh, I, I absolutely. I'm still bitter. Oh, I'm that. still pissed. Yeah, that God. And, 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 and I don't accept it either. It's kind of like, I'm waiting for either. that to get retconned back out. That whole miniseries which had a lot of beautiful like trans allegory queer allegory like it should not have been for nothing it just shouldn't have i think at the end of the day the important thing to remember about this final plot point of this phase of marauders is it was a thread that was left for the next person and it can go either way when c orlando picks this up if he is the person that picks it up it could absolutely end up that you know it's as as was described like she's like i actually got permission from koa to come here like we want to establish a better relationship with you guys i need some help or it could be i am totally going behind everybody's back read please don't tell anybody about this here's a really ill-advised gift that i should never have given you let's deal with all the consequences and i think that an author serves a story really well when they leave a plot thread like that at the end of their time that somebody else can pick up on you have no idea where the next person is going to go with it by default and the possibilities are endless yeah i think that's a really good point and i i think that that's just flat out what it is it's it's up to whoever takes over to interpret it again same thing with sebastian shaw yeah i'm and you know what i think like in the final analysis that's like the jerry did some great stuff uh some questionable stuff there you know over the span of this whole series but at the end of the day i think it was a really successful run uh i think it'll be fondly remembered and i think he left all the characters in a better place than he had found them and and everybody you know everybody grew along the way friendships were made and and uh and and evolution happened so i'm looking forward to what comes oh yeah this was this entire series throughout the krakoa era is was my absolute favorite book and then of course when x-factor came out it was my second favorite book but it was still just like right up there it was just top tier from for me i know a lot of people did feel like it did meander a little bit but it was just a great ride from beginning to end for me personally we had had a little conversation in the green room about whether there was a mistake on uh, where Iceman was fighting Frost Giants, because we all yes. know Frost Giants are from Jotunheim, and it said that he was in Niflheim, so I had to go look it up, and Niflheim is where hell is. Niflheim is the realm of the dead, so I actually right. really like that, because he went to go fuck up dead Frost Giants uh, to flex. You know so- what? That is an amazing interpretation of that scene, and I fully embrace and accept i it. love that because we thought like it had been maybe a little error he was supposed to be in jotunheim but that's that's yeah i i liked it so much more once i went and looked it up after we because i didn't even realize it didn't say jotunheim i just kind of read right through it the first time assuming he was in the jotunheim. only thing worse than frost giants are zombie frost giants absolutely and also just to be clear like him going there seemed like he was they made it seem like he was bullying them at first so i'm really glad we got that final you know, word from him where he said it's payback for invading Earth because the Yot- the Jotun have never been known for being all that, well, good in the Marvel Universe. And so that means that these are literally the ones who died invading Earth in War of the Realms. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Indeed. So, so you are completely right. 
So no prize for you. <laughs> and the second thing, and maybe I'm off on this and remembering it wrong, but we had a data page here with Dolores from the X desk. And Ooh, yeah. didn't Ben Percy kill her off? Mm, she was shot. We don't, it, it was unclear whether she survived or not, but I guess she has survived. I definitely remember her being shot, but I, somehow I, it took me aback like when I read it. Like, wait a minute, I thought... Percy had killed her. Yeah. I don't know if, if she was killed or if it... I remember her being shot, like, at a moment where it was, like, to stop a conversation. It was it was a pivotal moment, but... and she Yeah, Big Lebowski was uh, accusing her of, like, being a traitor and being responsible for all the people who had died. And then she was like, whoa, whoa wait a minute. Like, hold on. Like, I was just, like, trading information. Like, I didn't kill it. And then, like, she took a bullet. And I thought she was dead, but maybe not. Well, like, so it looks like she got better and... And uh, she's enjoying a lovely bouquet of orchids. So love that. I love that. (laughs) I love that little, you know, a little tip into what what could be coming down the road. I I love, I'm really enjoying Orcus as the big bad. I love that it's an organization and there's different facets to it. It's like, it's insidious in a way that like, uh, that, you know, maybe Hydra would be minus all the Nazi stuff. It's, it's, I think it's a great antagonistic structure. Absolutely. I mean, it's a little, nazi they're still trying to commit genocide <laughs> against a race of people no no no. but I, I just mean as far as like an organization like it, there's some mental gymnastics to separate hydra from actual nazis oh you're right like, no absolutely but this Fair. is doing that that same kind of function and yes some of the agents are from hydra so yeah they, i mean we're not free of nazis yet <laughs> but um I, I just i just like the idea of orcus it's it's something new but it's you know it's almost like a familiar kind of trope and it's being executed well and I like I like yeah. that it's you know you see these little tendrils of Orcus kind of creeping around and and absorbing other other hateful bigots. Oh yeah, yeah. I I love the flower theme. You know it's it's great and like the like you said the little tendrils like the root system like that's just such a great angle to play you know thematically and speaking of white pages i guess my last final thought i love the the email transcripts from the desk of sebastian shaw <laughs> like you know abdicating his position and he uh emails shinobi he emails lord chantel setting everybody against themselves like you know this just kind of further proof of what josh was saying that you know never trust sebastian shaw as far as you can throw him he's always pulling strings and and playing chess absolutely he's absolutely. a bastard coded bastard with bastard filling <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope that that lesson that Kate and Emma taught him are sticking, though. At least for a little bit. No chance. Hey everybody, Nico here one last time. Now I know this is an X-Men X Wednesday, but Marvel Voices Heritage featured at least one really massive X-Men story, and it was such a great one, and our team had such a powerfully good time talking about it. We just felt as though including it here might help some people who sat this one out initially, because it can be really hard where to spend your comic dollars, right? Especially with titles going up in price, and it getting more and more difficult to get to the comic shop for many people. It can be really difficult to know what to buy when, if you 
especially if you're not sure what's inside of it. And this X-Men story in Marvel Voices Heritage is so terrific, and it really sets the tone for the issue. And it's the kind of thing where if you appreciate the vibe of the opening story, you'll probably appreciate the vibe of all of the stories. To give a little bit of an idea into the incredible creatives that went into Marvel Voices Heritage, The Unexpected was by Jim Terry on story with Brittany Peer on colors, Snowguard, the Turngate song was by Nyla Inkusuk on story with Natasha Donovan on pencils and inks and Rochelle Rosenberg on colors. American Eagle, Not Dead Yet, had Stephen Paul Judd on story and David Cutler on pencils with Jose Marzon Jr. on inks and Paris Elaine on colors. River, A Friend in Need by Rebecca Roanhorse, the author of the Phoenix Song Echo miniseries, as well as Sean Bial on pencils with Bellardino Bravo on inks and Maury Hollowell on colors with VCs Ariana Mar team favorite on letters. Now the incredible cover was done by Kyle Charles and Rochelle Rosenberg. And there were of course a number of amazing covers available. There was a special feature included in the back of this book, which is from the United States of Captain America issue number three. The story is about Joe Gomez, a Kickapoo construction worker and handyman. And it's from the story people like us written by Darcy Little Badger, penciled by David Cutler, inked by Roberto Poggi, colored by Matt Milla, and lettered by VCs Joe Caramagna. A number of these characters were new to a number of people. So if you're looking to know where you can get a little bit more information on these characters, Snowguard is a mainstay in the new Champions, which I'm personally a pretty big fan of. She made her initial debut in Champions number 19. She would go on to finish out that volume, also appearing in Infinity Countdown Champions and Unstoppable Wasp. She's gone on to appear in Outlawed and Incoming, as well as the subsequent volume of Champions. Now, for the story about American Eagle, which hit our team so hard and so amazingly, American Eagle's backstory goes a little bit further. Now, while Snowguard has only been around for about five years, American Eagle made his first debut back in September of 1981 in Marvel 2-in-1 Annual number 6. June 1982 would see him appear in the pages of Covered on This Show, Contest of Champions, before making appearances in titles like Incredible Hulk, Rom, and Marvel Comics Presents over the course of the next decade. He just really didn't show up a whole lot. However, Marvel 2007 saw him reintroduced into the Marvel Universe in Thunderbolts 112, where he served during the Initiative storyline. American Eagle would go on to get his own one-shot in 2008, before kind of disappearing back into the background for a while, appearing in titles like War Machine, Fear Itself, The Home Front, as well as Black Panther and the Agents of Wakanda. Most recently, he made appearances in the Avengers series by Jason Aaron, and it's just so important that so many of these amazing characters don't get forgotten and don't just blend into the background. Hopefully you guys go out and give Marvel Voices Heritage a shot and you're able to find some of these amazing appearances of some of these phenomenal characters. Until next time for our Marvel Fanfare Friday, guys, enjoy this last segment. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open, and we will see ya. Hey everyone, welcome back to X's for Podcasts, the show where we take a look at Marvel's mutants, magic, and many voices week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm TK, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at X, Nate X, Gray X. 
wow, that's a, that's a lot of X's right there, but mm, oh, who am I to say? Right? Hey, I'm Raven, aka Dame Red Benji. You can find me over on Twitter, Instagram, a bit of TikTok. I'm kind of all over the place. Come find me. I'm Kyle. You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. That's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. And I'm Steven. You can find me on Twitter at Steven of Wonder and over on Facebook as an admin for the House of North Star group. And now I'm debating on starting an Instagram because I'm feeling left out. <laughs> and everyone, hi, I'm Tori. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Tori underscore Sheehan and on Instagram at SM Tori. That's Tori with an I. And this week we have the privilege of talking about heritage. Guys, Marvel Voices Heritage, what do we think? Oh. It was it was so different than what I'm used to reading, but it was so good. That's yeah. a really good way of putting it. It was definitely a lot different than I was used to. And my favorite story was actually the most unexpected one. <laughs> For me anyway. Yeah, I have to agree. It was it was different and eye-opening and refreshing and kind of sad at the same time. Yeah, I definitely felt like each each story shows like a different thing. Like some of them were action-packed, some of them were very character-focused. Some of them were very uh, education focused, but each of them, I was like, I want more from each of these stories. And I'm very sad that I'm not getting more. Mm-hmm. So taking a look, uh, let's start right with The Unexpected, which, you know, I I think jumped out to me immediately because I'm always looking for the X, you know, the Krakoan bent in any story that comes up these days. And man, how exciting to see this group of X-Men jump on page together and jump into action. We were talking about Moonstar. Forge, Risk, Warpath, and Grey Crow. Yes! Mm-hmm. I was so excited for Risk! <laughs> I, I don't even know where to begin with my love for this character. Well, tell us. Yeah. No. <laughs> wow. <Okay. laughs> I froze for a minute. I, you know, it's of course extremely important to have indigenous representation in the books. I'm especially enamored with the fact that she's also Cuban, and that's a aspect of the other <laughs> book that we don't see a lot in comics. So it was just really exciting, and I love her powers, and I just, I just want more of her. I just want more. Stephen, did she resonate with you starting back in the X Force road trip era, or I didn't actually know she existed <laughs> until. Uh, sword. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. So when I when I was like when I heard Risk, I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. Who is that? And I I did a quick Google and I read her Wikipedia and then I saw the word Cuban and I was like, what? <laughs> it was it was a very ridiculous moment, but very on brand for me. These are all characters that so many people have a connection to and so many people love, but we honestly do not get to see nearly enough of any of them. Yes, luckily Grey Crow does get to appear in Hellions. We get to see Forge, but he he seems to be a background character or just like uh, almost like a cameo in most anything we see him in. So it's like, I want more of all these characters. And I freaking love Danny Moonstar and Warpath. So yeah, it was like, it was really great to kind of see everybody together on one story. And I'm like, oh, I hope we get to see more because these are characters that are so interesting and like their dialogue is so fun. Like we don't get to see nearly enough of it. And I just, oh, I'm here for it. I think it really was the double-edged sword of almost all the stories in this. But again, for me, just love and X stuff. This one in particular of, I would buy this book tomorrow if they had it, if they were teaming up, you know, 
know, if they had a team on the regular. Oh my god! And yes. you know, I I would I three years, you know, thirty six issues, as many annuals as you want. I'm here for it. But also a bit of a concern of like, when will I actually see these characters again? Like, we don't see them get to connect with their heritage and get to connect with their community together very often. I definitely think that this was a great intro for these characters, especially as someone who doesn't know them as well as the rest of you. I got a really great feel for who they each are, their dynamic. And I think that if I picked it up, I'd be really excited to see more of each individual character, but I'd be very disappointed that there isn't time for them to actually be teamed up in in issues for themselves. Like they don't have a series. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted more time to see them working together. They each got a panel explaining their preference of how they attack and then the big bad was gone and their their story was done and it was kind of it was cool seeing them working together but i wanted more two and a half of them have been hellions (laughs) i mean you're not wrong wrong. (laughs) it's something that's been brought up a lot particularly about gray crow which is this idea that like there's again it's a double-edged sword you know him being the character that he is we don't put him on a pedestal and elevate him just because he's native and sort of do this like oh all native people are perfect like they're all great Uh uh, in the name of diversity he is a complicated character he has done some bad stuff and that doesn't have anything to do with his background that's just who he is as a person and now we get to see him trying to make amends for that well hopefully our uh, enthusiasm for this story reflects a great enthusiasm in the marvel fandom and we can uh start to see some movement and seeing characters like this not just more prominently featured in books but more prominently featured together mm-hmm. so from there we move on to snow guard the turngate song i hope i'm saying that right okay um, <laughs> snow guard a character i personally didn't really know how about you guys no completely new to me mm-hmm. oh my gosh yeah i had never heard of her before but i'm so intrigued mm-hmm. yeah. love I- the, the magic aspect of her I'm glad that they they stated that she was part of the champions because that now gives me a place to go look to learn more about her. Right, mm-hmm. absolutely. And what do we think just about this story overall? The mythological tie-ins, the art. I thought it was gorgeous. I was really, everything about it just kind of fascinated me. I am so, so here for it because myth, lore, and legend of uh, Native peoples is something that I don't think many of us have really been exposed to. So getting to get just even a peek into this world of myth and lore that it holds very sacred and very dear to the storyline. I was like, I was just, oh, I was in it. I was enraptured by it. I loved it. And I loved the strength of these characters while not relying on on just, okay, we've got to go blow things up kind of action. This was, this was a strength of character and spirit, and it was just so gorgeously done. I really loved seeing her turn these seemingly nefarious, like, spirit mythological creatures on her side and on the side of her people and to protect her tribe it was wonderful and it it was really nice seeing her learn to use the power of her community in order to protect her community the history behind her community was her strength in this particular instance she didn't rely on her superpowers she relied on her ancestral knowledge i guess yeah yeah that discovery of self by going back to i guess home is a really wonderful journey 
journey, I think, to to showcase like there's so much of the diaspora that comes into the native experience that is expressed by coming back and learning more about where you came from and what myths you can kind of put back into your life to help bring about a better future. I think it's really amazing the way this sort of plays as a superhero story and also a fable wrapped up as a superhero story. She's both engaging with her own mythology and creating it at the same time. From there, we head over to Not Dead Yet, a story about American Eagle. I had never heard of American Eagle before. It was a depressing story. They were not hiding behind that. But I really loved seeing like this man's journey back to heroism and protecting people who, you know, worship, admire, and look up to him. Was this the longest story actually in the book? I think it was. Yeah, I think it was. Yep. Uh, so yeah, yeah. It, it could be because like there was just a lot more time to flesh it out, but I I just really loved this man and I was like heartbroken for him. So I was just so happy that in the end, he seemed to find himself again. It's said uh, roughly 50 years in the future. And at one point, I think they state that he's 65. So right now he's only a 15 year old. If oh, we were to do it by by present day standards. I right. didn't even realized that this was in the future. Oh my God. Yeah. I missed it's it. Yeah, 2071. <laughs> yeah. It's a really <laughs> tiny little note. Uh, mm-hmm. It's super easy. It, it, I I missed it my first read through as well. And there's not really anything in the art that says, you know, like it's not like the casino has holograms or anything like that. <laughs> right, um, right, right. It's all pretty straightforward. Which I love it because it, it follows much more honestly how time and, it, you know, advancement tends to go. Yes. And it shows you that honestly, the more things change, the more they kind of stay the same. So you have this, you know, hero who was revered and and who was, you know, celebrated in his time. And then, you know, as he got older, he kind of got moved to the side, pushed aside. And it's something that honestly, it happens with our aging population quite quick. You know, we we are quick to make them into heroes and, oh, you're an essential worker. Oh, you, you uh, did this military service. Oh, you're so great. And then the moment they start slowing their step just a little bit or, you know, needing a, you know, a few accommodations. Oh, you know, hey, we've got this covered. Don't worry, us youngins got. No, you can go away over here. Push to the side. It's like, ah, oh, damn, they didn't hold the punches. I think it's also something we see in long term looking at how we view indigenous people in mm-hmm. in our culture. There is a tendency to again want to put indigenous stories on a pedestal at certain times when it might be convenient or it might mm-hmm. be in vogue. And then when certain powers that be see that interest waning or a new sexy thing to focus on, those issues get put in the back burner on the back burner as though they are a trend and not a integral part of the history of this nation and of other nations. And what we really see here is a character reflecting that and showing that like the spirit is there the entire time. It's the world around that changes how it views and and values people like this. 
So from there, we move to River, A Friend in Need, a story about a character from Phoenix Song Echo. Anybody here been reading Phoenix Song Echo? Yes, yes. actually I have. I actually have not, so I apologize if, if I'm in the dark for this one. You No need to apologize. Uh, it is a very specific slice of the Marvel Universe right now. This is a background story about a character who has been helping Echo on her journey to connect with the Phoenix and understand her powers. Spoiler, guys, skip skip ahead a while if you don't want Phoenix song spoilers. But mm-hmm. uh, what we ultimately learn is that the primary antagonist of Phoenix song is the adversary, the primarily X-Men villain who often comes into conflict. Uh, conflict with forge the adversary wants the phoenix power for uh itself and it has been using this character river to get it we have not really been shown how or what the history of that is until this story right here which kind of starts to give it to us so raven what did you think oh my god yes thank you well because i've been reading phoenix echo song and they introduced river and oh my god he's such a good character and you want to know more about him so it's like, yay, I get more, I get more. <laughs> so I was happy to see this. As someone who doesn't really know much about the story going on in Echo, I loved his powers. <laughs> <gasps> Really? I was like so enthralled about that. It actually came off a little bit like Wicked. This made me more interested to read. Phoenix Song Echo. I actually really love Echo anyway, so oh, yes. in the end I was always going to read it. It's just a matter of getting to it at this point. Yeah, I also don't know anything about Phoenix Song Echo, but this was my favorite story just from the the pacing, the imagery, the excitement of the horror and the creep factor. I, I loved everything about it. Yeah. I felt that it worked really well as itself. I love the Haley Joel Osment kind of icy dead people feel of his powers. (laughs) Oh my gosh, yes. I knew where the ending was going. I was like, anything that comes out of a creepy bunny is not going to be nice to you. But but I still loved that how much it was happening. I, you know, even though I'm not in the X-Men universe, I know what a big deal Phoenix is. And so like I got, I understood like what the the stakes were that were happening right now so it made me very interested in the character of river it made me very interested in like what's gonna happen i think this was the point where i really started to realize that these stories are not happening in a vacuum that they are including bits and pieces that are canon and will be referenced in the real series and i think that that's really important to get people to read these compilations as well and get them interested in the these kinds of stories. Oh yeah, definitely. These these books have definitely shown a lot of character progression. We've seen other characters learn to use their powers in new ways that have come back later on in, in their respective series. So yeah, these are very important books. This story in particular, I have been wanting to learn more about River's backstory and seeing what he went through was heartbreaking. This was a gut punch. Seeing how much trauma he was dealing with as a result of his own powers, it it was just, like I said, heartbreaking. I, I feel so bad for him. And to have him being manipulated by the adversary as a result of that, it's it's horrible. And I, I'm hoping that he's able to come out from under that in 
at the by the end of of phoenix song echo coming to the end here we've got an excerpt from people like us talking about the captain america of the kickapoo tribe seems like we're getting sort of a spin on something that happens in comics sometimes where the mantle of captain america is going beyond just the one person and is becoming almost a brand i love this trope i love the idea that you know these because i think we see it as comic book fans like these characters we internalize them and there is a part of all of us that is the character that we identify with and love and so the idea that within the universe somebody might look at captain america and go i want to do that and you know become the captain america of the kickapoo tribe really cool that the costume looks absolutely gorgeous this excerpt to me was fantastic what do you guys think i loved it i loved it so much yeah i really liked it i was only sad that we didn't get to actually see him in action yeah Mm -hmm. i was so excited i mean again it was pretty much a great tool to get me interested to read the us of cap i've been dying to read anyway so i i don't know there's something that i love about seeing him as a a blue collar construction worker who is just you know making ends meet getting shit done but also is looking out for his community so to me it's just uh, i love it on so many levels and i really want to see more of it so i'm here for it darcy little little badger is one of those creators i absolutely trust to pay attention to those little details and show us a character that lives in the experiences of a lot of people who will be reading the book like them i love it 